And the title of today's class is, Oh, What a Revelation. When I heard that title, which was coined by our Miss Titi Olivares, I found it very fab, nice, and young. It's a gender reveal party. You might think I'm a little old for a gender reveal party, but I have cousins in the U.S. who are in their 30s, and they have been sharing pictures of the gender reveal party. And that is why I know, I know this. Me, I only had a baby shower. Now they have this gender reveal party, whether it's going to be a girl or a boy. Anyway, so that's the image that came to my mind when I heard the title, Oh, what a revelation. Who is going to be revealed? Who are we going to be talking about? We are going to be talking about that OMG in class number one, which is God. So God is the one who is revealed. So why did God reveal himself? The Catechism of the Catholic Church tells us that God in his goodness and wisdom revealed himself to us to make known his will so that we can share in his divine nature. I remember very clearly this point in the way, point number 382. When I made you a present of that life of Jesus, I wrote as an inscription, May you see Christ, may you find Christ, may you love Christ. Have you tried at least to live the first? So these were words which St. Josemaria wrote on a book that he had given Don Ricardo Fernandez Balestin in 1933. Um, he grabbed maybe, I think it was one of his books, on the Passion of Christ, and he wrote it there on the first page, and he gave it to Don, Fern Don Ricardo Fernandez Velasquez. He wrote there, may you seek Christ, may you find Christ, may you love Christ. I think that all of us here now on this rainy afternoon attending this class can say that we are trying to live at least the first admission. May you seek Christ. And knowing God, who is all good, I am sure that he will allow us to find him. And then when we do find him, we will learn to love him. So why did God reveal himself to mankind? You know, God is love, and he wishes that we, his creatures, love him. But he also gave us the gift of freedom. He's not satisfied with the sur servile love. He can order us and 
all the creatures that he has created to love him and to serve him. However, God is also proud. Even us, I think, will not be happy with the love that is ordered. He would like, and how much more God would like a love that is freely, truly, and fully given. He also knows, however, that one really cannot love that which we do not know. We know of the word, um, the phrase, love at first sight. I, I think the more proper word is uh, not love, but attracted at first sight. And once you're attracted to someone, you have that desire to get to know him or her better. And in the process of getting to know somebody better, you'll move from attraction to hopefully to love. So that is why God has wanted to reveal himself to us so that we will, um, with our freedom, love him truly and fully and we really love him. From the Catechism of the Catholic Church, um, by revealing himself, God wishes to make men and women capable of responding to him and of knowing him and of loving him far beyond their own natural capacity. So how did God reveal himself? So first we know that God wanted to reveal himself because he wanted us to love him. There are several ways in which God revealed himself to, to us to make sure that we get to know him. First, God revealed himself through his created world. Um, he revealed himself through, through the flora and fauna we see around us the sky, the sea, and everything in it. And then also he has revealed himself directly, by talking really directly to Adam and Eve. And then lastly, God revealed himself fully by sending his son, Jesus Christ. Now that we are in lockdown, or we are here in this, pandemic, we have found more time to appreciate nature. Um, maybe we are, we have more time because we do not travel as much. We do our work from the house. Um, maybe we are silently sitting in our living room or in our bedroom. And we will, we will hear, we can hear the chirping of the birds. We can appreciate um, the plants and the trees around us when we go for our exercise as we walk through um, our community. God is uh, very beautiful because nobody can really compare to the plants and the animals that he has given us. And I remember these words from 
from the gospel, from the good news. Yet no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Maybe in a way, this is God's way of healing the world that he has created. And I think our world really is healing from the slowdown in, in the world because of, of the pandemic. Jesus has shown us more um, how God is in the way that he acted or in the way that he thought. And we see all this in the gospel. We see how our Lord has chosen to deal with the sick, with the poor, with sinners, how he talked to the publicans, how he doesn't mind dealing with tax collectors, uh, mingling with them. We also see our Lord when he got upset with um, the merchants in the temple courtyard. This gives us an insight into how God thinks and how God looks at the world and, uh, and people. God, Jesus Christ is simultaneously the mediator and the fullness of revelation. He is both the revealer and the revelation. As the word of God made flesh. In many and various ways, God spoke of all to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God in his word has made everything in a definitive way. So why did God reveal himself? Or we heard, indeed, Jesus Christ say in the gospels, go and preach the good news. And uh, the gospel, um, is um, coined from a Hebrew word which means good and teaching. So the good teaching. And our Lord has uh, handed on to us the good news in two ways. First orally and then in writing. Orally, by the apostles who handed on by the spoken word of their preaching, by the example they gave, by the institutions they established, what they themselves had received, whether from the lips of Christ, from his, from his way of life and his words, or whether they had learned it at the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And he also revealed or handed on to us the good news. Um, in writing. So by those apostles and other men associated with apostles who under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit committed the message of salvation to writing. So our Lord left us um, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, the words Old Testament, New Testament are words which we, which the church has coined for itself. Our Lord did not even uh, state this. 
you know that before uh, there there was no Bible. Uh, it was all just the, the story of our Lord and his teachings were all handed down from uh, one generation to the next orally. Later on, with the some apostles, our Lord through the Holy Spirit wanted that it be written down. And that was when um, St. Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John wrote down the Gospels. But before then, nothing was written down. We are told that um, the Old Testament has 46 books. And the New Testament has 27 books. When we hear uh, the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Joshua, Kings, Tobit, or Maccabees, those are books of the Old Testament. So usually when we go to Sunday Mass, the first reading is from the Old Testament. And then when we hear Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or Epistle of St. Paul to call the Corinthians, the Acts of the Apostles, or Revelation, these books are from the New Testament. So the New Testament has 27 books. Sacred scripture is the speech of God as it is written down, as it is put down in writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God also revealed himself through sacred tradition, which transmits in its entirety the word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles of Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits to the successors of the apostles so that they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it to all by their teaching. So from the start, um, we only had sacred tradition. The act of choosing which of the many manuscripts in the Middle East, part of the Old Testament and the New Testament, what, is, what forms part of sacred tradition? So there were many, many manuscripts. But the act of deciding, ah, oh, this manuscript is inspired the Holy, by the Holy Spirit and should form part of the Bible. Is an act of tradition which the church exercised. And that is how they decided which, pro, which 46 books would form part of the Old Testament and which 27 books would form part of the New Testament. That is an example of our sacred tradition. There are manuscripts, I remember from one of the classes I attended, which we call the apocryphal gospels. And this does not form part of the Bible, of the older of the New Testament. Um, the apocryphal gospel, there's a story there in which God, or our Lord Jesus Christ, used his power when he was um, a carpenter. He was building a table and he was almost done with it. And then when he was looking at it, one leg was a little short 
and then using his power, he pulled it so that it will become stable. So the the church decided, oh, this is just a you know one of those stories. This is not um, this will not this is not a part of the uh, manuscript which God would want in which God revealed himself because Jesus Christ will not use his, his power to do magic like this. So faith is man's response to God's revelation. It is a personal adherence to God in Christ, moved by Christ's words and deeds. The credibility of this revelation above all rests on the credibility of the person of Jesus Christ, indeed on his whole life. His role as mediator, as the fullness and ground of the credibility of revelation, distinguishes the person of Jesus Christ from the founder of any other religion. So founders of other religions do not claim to be in their own person the fullness and accomplishment of what God wishes to reveal, but only to be a mediator who will lead others to this revelation. So it is only Christ who said himself you know, that in him you will find the fullness of revelation. The work of giving an authentic interpretation of the word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the leading teaching office of the church alone. So we call this teaching office the magisterium of the church. It's not an institution, it's not a building, it's not a foundation, it's not an office. Magisterium is uh, made up of the bishops, of the bishops all over the world, in communion with the successor of Peter, who is the Holy Father, the Bishop of Rome. So the magisterium is not superior to the word of God, but is its servant. It teaches only what has been handed on to it. At the divine command and with the help of the Holy Spirit, it listens to this devoutly, guards it with dedication, and expounds it faithfully. All that it proposes for belief as being divinely revealed is drawn from this single deposit of faith. The teachings of the church's magisterium are the most important place where there the apostolic tradition is found. With respect to this tradition, we could say that the magisterium is, as it were, its sacramental dimension, that is, it's outward visible expression. So how is revelation transmitted? Fides at Mores, I think, are Latin words. The church likes to use Latin because it's a dead language. And therefore the words in Latin are, the meaning of the words in Latin are not uh, subject to change anymore. And that's why the official language of the church is Latin. So fides et mores means faith and customs, doctrine and conduct. So how is revelation transmitted? Through the teachings of the church, 
Chef's Magisterium, to our liturgical prayers, and to the common view of the faithful who live in God's grace, and also by the teaching of the faith by parents to their children, or maybe now more, more current is by the teaching of the faith by the grandparents to their children, to their grandchildren. So that is what we have this word apostolate. The mothers and the fathers are busy trying to earn a living. So the grandparents can step in and try to pass on the faith to their grandchildren. We said, no, who interprets the revelation of God? The magisterium of the church. So the magisterium, as we said earlier, bishops in communion with the Bishop of Rome, who is the successor of Peter. The revelation is contained in sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium. They all constitute a, a holy trinity. If you, you can put it that way, because no one of the three can exist on its own. And it is the Holy Spirit which is the foundation of this unity. The Holy Spirit is the author of the sacred scripture, protagonist of the living tradition of the church, guide of the magisterium, which he assists with his carnation. Um, so in during the Protestant Reformation, we hear that the churches from the very beginning, the Protestant churches from the very beginning, wished to follow the principle of sola scriptura. So that's another, those are Latin words again, sola scriptura, meaning only scripture leaving scriptural interpretation in the hands of individual believers or individual readers. So this position has given rise to the great dispersion of Protestant denominations and has turned out to be unsustainable. Every scripture text requires a context, specifically a tradition from which it is born and in which it is read and interpreted. And that is why we need the magisterium to interpret the sacred scripture for us. Um, there is another error um, where by the fundamentalists who try to separate scripture from tradition and the magisterium. They erroneously seek to maintain a unity of interpretation by adhering exclusively to the literal sense of the written word of the sacred scripture. But for us, there is um, unity of interpretation because we listen to what the magisterium tells and the magisterium composed of the bishops who the descendants of the apostles over time no? 
they are the ones who interpret the sacred sacred scripture for us. We say that the teaching of the magisterium is infallible, that they cannot go wrong. When the magisterium tells us something, we bow in obedience, in good faith, because we know that they do not lead us astray, because we trust in the Holy Spirit. We trust that the Holy Spirit has guided the bishops in coming up with this uh, pronouncement. The magisterium speaks through the ecumenical council. And then also the Pope, when he promulgates a teaching for the good of his flock, uh, we say it's ex cathedra. Ex cathedra means from the seat. Or from the chair, from the chair of Peter, he is pronouncing that this um, dogma or this doctrine has to be believed by all the faithful. Um, for those of you who have visited uh, St. Peter's Basilica at the Vatican, I, I think you will remember seeing a church floating midway and behind. Um, I'm sorry, not a church, a chair floating in the middle of space at the back of the, of the altar. And behind the church is a stained glass oh, with, a, with a dove in the middle, and it is yellow. And it signifies the church of, of Peter, the, the chair signifies the chair of Peter. And then also they are, the magisterium does not go wrong, even if they are not all together in one place, like when they are in an ecumenical council. But when the bishops, all, all bishops all over the world are unanimous in proclaiming a truth, even though they are not gathered all together in one place. Do you know that there are only two occasions in which the Holy Father has proclaimed a dogma ex cathedra? I mean, uh, using the chair of Peter in order to ask or to tell people these are roots which should be um, believed in. And those two occasions from all eternity so far, there are only two occasions in which the Pope has used the seat of Peter in order to, the chair of Peter in order to proclaim uh, a certain truth. And these two uh, dogmas are one, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, which was promulgated in 1854, and the Assumption of Our Lady, Body and Soul to Heaven, uh, sometime in 1915. So neither of these pronouncements was earth shattering for the faithful of the church because these beliefs have been nurtured through devotion, prayer, and local teaching for centuries before becoming 
official PayPal teaching. So for the apparition at Lourdes, uh, which happened in 1858, um, Our Lady appeared before St. Bernadette. St. Bernadette then was only 14 years old. She was the daughter of a miller. And they lived in Lourdes in southern France, really very far from any urban center um, near the mountains, on the mountains already very near Spain. The priest then of Lourdes was Outstanding, uh, was astonished as he was talking to Bernadette. During the 13th appearance of Our Lady to Bernadette, she requested that a procession be held for her and that a chapel be uh, built at this place of her um, apparition. So Bernadette went to the, I don't know if it's a bishop, to the priest, Irish priest, and told him, um, Our Lady has requested for a procession and that a chapel be built here. The priest told Bernadette, I cannot fulfill um, the wishes of the lady until you tell me the lady's name. So on the 14th appearance of Our Lady, Bernadette asked her, what is your name? But the lady only smiled. During her 15th appearance, um, Bernadette still, again, persisted to ask Our Lady, what is your name so that I can tell the our parish priest so that he can start a procession and have a chapel built at this place. Again, Our Lady only smiled. But on the 16th apparition of Our Lady to St. Bernadette, I will read from, um, well, a translation of the account of St. Bernadette. During the 16th apparition of Our Lady, uh, St. Bernadette had been asking her thrice already, but still Our Lady just kept smiling. And on her fourth try, Our Lady answered her. Um, Bernadette asked, what is your name? Tell me so that I can inform our parishes and we can, we can start building the little chapel here. Our Lady smiled and answered Bernadette. And our lady said, I am the Immaculate Conception. So Bernadette told the parish priest, our lady said, she is the Immaculate Conception. And she said that, are you sure you did not, are you sure of what you're saying? And Bernadette said, yes, because on my way here, I really kept on repeating the words so that I do not forget. Our Lady said, I am the Immaculate Conception. So for the parish priests and all the church officials at that time, they were all flabbergasted because in, 18, in 1854, the Pope had come out with that dogma of the Immaculate Conception. 
and they cannot imagine how a 14-year-old young girl in the mountains of Lourdes would have how she could know those words. I am the Immaculate Conception. So for the church people at the time, um, it was like an affirmation that the dogma of the Pope proclaimed in 1854 was, was true. And it was Our Lady had confirmed it herself. She had told herself the Immaculate Conception. So is revelation immutable? What does immutable mean? Immutable means unchanging over time. Revelation is immutable. It does not change. And everything um, was revealed. Everything that we need to know in order to love our Lord, in order to go to heaven, um, and then all the revelation that we need ended with the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, but then, even if revelation is already complete, it has not been made completely explicit. It remains for the Christian faith gradually to grasp its full significance over the course of the centuries. 